Welcome to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I'm Kristen Hinkey, your hostess with the mostest, guide from the side, and mistress of ceremonies. Together, we're about to explore and deconstruct the shame and stigma surrounding our sexuality. You heard that right. We're going deep on the topics of sex, relationships, spirituality, health, and everything else that impacts our ability to live, love, and orgasm freely. My hope is to shine a light on our shared experiences by normalizing taboo topics and empowering each of you to reclaim autonomy of your pleasure, your bodies, and your lives. You are now entering a judgment-free zone where I ask all the uncomfortable and embarrassing questions for you. Our unofficial mantra is be curious, not judgmental. So leave your inner prude at the door or strap her in tight because this is happening. Hello. Hi, guys. Welcome. Welcome back. For those of you who have been on this crazy ride the entire time, and welcome, a big grand welcome if this is your very first time experiencing Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I, of course, am Kristen Henke, your hostess with the mostest, as you heard in my intro. I am a somatic sex and intimacy coach. I am the mother of a toddler. We're going through it. It's exciting. It's messy. It's beautiful. I am a sometimes podcaster who is dedicated, committed, and excited to becoming a more consistent podcaster. And it feels really amazing to be chatting with y'all. It's been a long time. I went on a bit of a unanticipated multi-month hiatus uh, shortly after launching my third season. The podcast has experienced a lot of different growth seasons and I, it's just been an interesting ride. And so I'm really, really grateful for those of you who are still with me from season one. And I just wanted to talk with you for a couple of minutes uh, about that, right? Like there are so many podcasts that you could be listening to, and I am so deeply honored that you choose to be here with me and that you choose to open your heart and your mind and your curiosity to these conversations that are um, typically humorous, often a smidge uncomfortable, sometimes sensitive, but overwhelmingly expansive and full of vitality and information and beauty. And it's an honor to share people's stories and to engage in conversation and storytelling in this way. And when I first launched the podcast, it was something that I needed to do desperately. I was pregnant with our first and only child I had all of this creative energy kind of coursing through my body and I needed an outlet. I had at the same time had just moved to a new state, a new city, a new house, a new life. I didn't, I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone. I was completely out of my element and I needed a way to fill my days and express myself. (laughs) And so podcasting. Um, I've been such a lover of podcasts for such a long time, and this 
platform has always spoken to me and I decided to go for it. And it was magnificent. It was messy and it was new and I wasn't worried about what number on the charts I was. I wasn't worried about other podcasts like mine in the, in the category, in the same category. I was being driven by my curiosity and by joy and by that creative urge to make something that felt real and important and special. And I had a great time doing it. And everyone who has listened to the show from day one has told me that season one was their absolute favorite. And I'm so honored by that because that makes me feel really seen. It makes me feel like my heart and my intention were felt and received. And that's incredible. And it's so special. And then I took the show in a different direction for season two. I had so much success with season one that I really wanted to create another layer. I wanted to reach people that I might not have ordinarily reached. I wanted to broaden my demographic. I wanted to um, elevate voices, other voices. I wanted to create more impact. And at the same time, I did find myself getting kind of pulled onto the conveyor belt, you know, of, of growth and evolution. I saw myself making adjustments to the show based on what I saw others doing in the field, um, that was bringing a lot of success and a lot of, uh, visibility. And I wanted that for myself and I don't fault myself for that. I think that season two was also really beautiful. I had the opportunity to work with an amazing woman and friend who I love and cherish deeply, who is still in my life, who I still talk to. And we had a great time. And it was much harder to coordinate two different lives, two different moms with kids. Um, You know, there were so many life transitions going on. We were in different time zones. It was a whole thing, you guys. And we did our very, very best. And at the end of a kind of inconsistent roller coastery, as far as like back end production goes, um, second season, we made the joint decision to part ways in the podcasting field and, you know, just go back to our personal juicy friendship and our own creative endeavors, um, you know, separately. And that left me really wondering what I wanted to do with season three. And so season three, I kicked off at the beginning of this year with very high hopes and extremely unrealistically high standards. Um, I really wanted to create space for myself because at that moment in time, I felt like I was drowning in motherhood, in my private coaching practice, and I wanted the podcast to endure, but I also, I didn't want to sacrifice the quality of what I was producing. And so I decided to make things easier on myself and I was going to release, you know, one conversation a month so that I could really be present with that person and with their story and so that the sharing could be really in-depth and we could linger longer and and maybe this kind of slow way of 
bringing the show about would give me the space that I was craving and needing. And what ended up happening with that was really interesting. It was, it was kind of the opposite because I released three really beautiful, really important conversations, which are all out. And I um, have actually switched them. They are now going to live in the podcast world as bonus episodes. And you can find those on Nothing Confidential, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And all of them were really potent, gorgeous conversations that I felt so honored to be able to facilitate. And after I put those out, I found myself kind of frozen but by this idea that if I was only going to release or if I was only going to have 12 conversations the entire year, then they all had to be perfect. Like that perfectionist part of me kind of came out. And it completely immobilized me. I, you know, when I was in that space, that headspace, I couldn't just have a conversation because I was curious. I couldn't just reach out to someone on a whim because I thought what they were doing was cool. I couldn't, like, I didn't have the freedom to move the way that I have always moved as I've created this podcast over the last two and a half, almost three years now. And I, that's kind of when I, I just ghosted. I didn't mean to, it wasn't my intention, but I was overwhelmed and I missed basically one release date and then I missed another one and then I missed another one. And the next thing I know, it's been, you know, four months, three months, I haven't put out a podcast and I haven't said anything about it and I haven't talked to anyone about it. And that season was really important for me because I think what it kind of allowed me to do was sit with the possibility of never bringing the podcast back. It's like, oh, I could just disappear and slip off into oblivion quietly. And in a year or two, everyone will just be like, oh, I wonder what happened to that girl. I wonder what happened to that show. Like it was a good show when it started. And and that would be it because the space is, you know, there's so many amazing podcasts out there. But what happened when faced with that possibility was this stirring like deep in my belly and this longing to return to the energy of the first season, that pure need to create something for myself because I enjoy it, because I feel connected to it, because I love expressing myself through conversations and sharing and stories. And it reminded me, like I actually had the opportunity to miss the podcast, to miss the process, to miss having these conversations. And it made me realize that I didn't want the podcast to die. Like I didn't want her to quietly slip away into nothingness. Like I wanted to come back and I wanted to give myself permission to go back to what worked for me as an individual, not what is working for all of the chart toppers, not what's working for all the other female podcasters in the space, but what worked for me. And what really calls and appeals to me is having the freedom to engage in conversations from that place of open curiosity following the thread, you know, like pulling the thread, untangling these 
vulnerable, honest, real, humorous, juicy conversations by just being really present with people and reaching out to people based on my intuition and the beauty of their work and the things that they're doing in the world that really matter and my desire to talk about that more, to center that, to elevate that, and to bring that to life. The whole premise of this show is that, you know, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. And I am really just returning to the intention that I've had from the beginning, which is to create a space where it is safe and and slightly more comfy to normalize conversations that are typically thought of as taboo, stigmatic, uncomfortable. So... This is really, uh, this is a state of the union for everyone who I haven't connected with in the last few months through the podcast. I just want you to know where I'm at. It's, it's such a beautiful relationship I've had with this community and I want to be honest about what's happening and what's shifting. And I, I think about all of you guys. I think about everyone out there who is listening to the show. I think about the fact that you know, months passed and there was no show and I didn't say anything about it. And I apologize for that lack of communication. And I'm really excited to reconnect and to bring you conversations that I experienced so much joy while I was having. And so (laughs) without further ado, I want to walk you right into my first conversation back. It feels damn good to be here. And it feels really special to share this guest with you. Before I jump into my my personal connection with her, I'm going to share a more official bio with you. Ahem, ahem, ahem. Brooke Adams Law is an award-winning author, book coach, and CEO of Writing Brave Press. She helps creative, intuitive women who have always wanted to be writers step into their author identity and start, finish, and publish brave, dazzling books. Brooke's debut novel, Catch Light, was chosen as the winner of the Fairfield Book Prize, named a Best Indie Book of 2020 by Kirkus Reviews, and featured on Good Morning America's blog. She's famous for teaching a juicy, receptive, divine, feminine-inspired creative process that makes the journey of writing a pleasure, inspiring her clients to write and finish books they love, find new layers of richness in the stories they want to share, and express their most empowered and creative selves. So I met Brooke through a personal development course, a a year-long extravaganza uh, with the brilliant Dr. Valerie Rain. Brooke was actually in a different cohort than me, but we had connected over some kind of, I don't even know, all-inclusive, everyone who's ever been there kind of like calls. (laughs) So in, in that process, she was just one of those people who... I had immediate chemistry with. We saw each other out of lots and lots of faces on a Zoom screen whenever she would share or I would share. There was this resonance between us and we would we connected. We connected kind of offline and started having conversations. Fast forward, you know, a year and a half and Brooke and I ended up working together. She participated in one of my small group um, programs at the beginning of the year. And she is just a delightful human. We have become friends. And as you 
will hear she has now authored one of uh, my favorite reads of 2022 i can say that um her book catchlight is a really beautiful story and there are so many there are so many themes and characters and there's just a richness and depth to it that was um, really beautiful and there was a lot of zesty sex in the book and so I decided to bring her on to talk about writing sex to talk about the through line uh, between sex and creativity there was so many parts of this conversation. It is truly a multifaceted exploration of art, creative expression, sexuality, pleasure, the intimate relationship between all of these things. We discussed honoring our multifaceted humanity through normalizing sex in story. Brooke talks about how character development and exploration has become a practice in deep empathy for her. We explore reconnecting with Turn On in order to deepen both our sexual and creative expression. She shares about the evolution of her own sex life post shifting away from being so goal oriented and how this approach also changed the way that she writes and shows up for her art. Um, We talked about prioritizing, like that kind of led us to talking about prioritizing process over the result and how that's not only important when you're showing up to write a book or create something really meaningful, but when you're showing up to a sexual encounter with a partner, you know, the best kind of sex is when you don't have too many expectations and you're not driving towards one specific thing. When you are open to feeling into where you want to go, where your body wants to go, the kind of experience you want to have with your partner, the kind of intimacy you're trying to achieve, all of that becomes, there's so much more that becomes available when we kind of drop the expectation, when we drop the orgasm-oriented approach. So we spend some time talking about that. Um, and, and that also brought us to something that Brooke shares about a lot, which I was really, really drawn to, which was permission to not know where things are going all the time. Like permission to just show up and be in this space of wonder and curiosity, curiosity and openness. Yeah, so it, there was so much. We, we also, towards the end, we got into a really powerful discussion about pleasure as a as fuel for activism and how we desperately need like it's not just something that's nice but like experiencing fulfilling gratifying sexual experiences experiencing pleasure both sexual and non-sexual experiencing beauty, creating art, setting exquisite boundaries, like these are what makes the long game of activism possible. So I am going to end this rambly intro (laughs) right around here. I am out of practice and 
it doesn't even matter. It feels good to be back. I have talked for too long. I'm going to let you guys get to this conversation. I love this conversation. It's so much flowier and yummier than everything you just listened to for the last like eight minutes of this 20 minute intro, which is entirely too long. You guys, I'm aware of that. I just needed to kind of reintroduce us, reorient us, refocus us, and I'm feeling reconnected. It feels good. So I'm going to let you get to this. I'm so grateful to Brooke for sharing so beautifully and openly and honestly and bravely as she encourages and helps others to do. I have so many amazing things linked in the show notes for you guys, so please take a look at that, all of the ways you can work with Brooke. Or you can order her book, the other things that we reference, books and courses and um, ways to support grassroots efforts for multiple movements. All of these things will be linked in the show notes. I have so much love for all of you. It is so amazing to be back with you and I will talk to you very soon. Hey guys, welcome to Nothing Confidential. I'm here with my good friend and also published author, writing coach, creative queen extraordinaire, Brooke Adams-Law. Brooke, thanks for coming to the show. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Brooke and I are just laughing about how she was asking me. She looks very cute. No one can see and no one will get to see. She looks incredibly cute. All done. She even has earrings in. She was just preparing for, in case I used video and I don't use video. I have wet hair and look like I just swam out of the swamp. So <laughs> no video. But on podcasts, it's, it's equal opportunity. You show up and people get to listen to your ideas and it's great. <laughs> exactly. Well, and there is something to be said for your appearance, potentially impacting or feeding into the energy of like your energy in general and the energy mm-hmm. of your voice. Mm-hmm. I obviously for swamp reasons, try to keep mine separate, but I do think that sometimes being feeling ready, like that readiness mm-hmm. can come through in conversational energy too. So Love you that. are ready and I am excited. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So we are going to talk today about some of my favorite intersections when it comes to sexuality, pleasure, and creativity. And I thought I would kind of dump us in by talking about your book, Catch Light, which is a novel for any of you who have not heard of it or read it. You need to pick it up. You can get it on Amazon. Are there other places you can get it, Brooke? Yeah, you can get it from Barnes and Noble online or also bookshop.org. We'll order it from your local independent bookstore, but it's like a, you know, they'll drop ship it. And so if if your bookstore doesn't carry it yet, bookshop.org is a great place to support indie bookstores. And yeah, get on that. But it's in Barnes and Noble. So it's legit. Like this is legit summer read material right here. Um, And I, it's actually really funny to, have a personal relationship with the author of a fiction of a novel because I read I read so many novels but I think going into reading this one I was I was like looking for your voice because I know you so as I'm yeah. reading it I'm kind of looking for your voice and I was like oh this is going to be interesting I was just in a funny headspace starting it out just trying to like find you in the characters or in the words that they used and I am 
happy to report or happy is the wrong word. I am incredibly impressed to say that I, after a couple chapters, I disappeared into it, forgot Brooke had anything to do with it. Like didn't, the characters are so rich and well-formed and I'm like sucked in, like stayed up too late last night reading and had to do gal shot. Cause my eyes are puffy. Like it's, it's so good. Well, like I'm it's really good by that. Thank you. And I will say that one of the surprising things when the book first came out was I had a lot of extended family members who thought they saw either themselves or other people in the book. That wasn't my intention at all. Like somebody messaged me and was like, is this my brother? And I was like, no, I never thought of him once. However, I can see, like, she gave me some of these points and I was like, I can see why you would think that. But so it's really weird um, that people, people want to see themselves. And it's, it's interesting to have that reflected back. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, that's, that is a really good point. And I, I think that's true. People do want to see themselves in characters, especially if they like a character or if they feel drawn to a character. I think some of the most conflict I've experienced reading has been when there's a character that I so badly want to like and relate to. And then they keep doing things. I'm like, I would never do that. And it separates them from me. But at the same time, my question to myself is always, are they separate from me? Or am I uncomfortable with the fact that I'm capable of the stuff that they're doing? Even yeah. And I'm like separating it. Yeah. So we get super meta with that, but the, the, here's the kicker. And this is a, this is not a spoiler because very quickly it comes out. But when I first knew about your book and I read about it, this is about a family navigating something that's really hard and tragic. The the mother has Alzheimer's disease and she's losing her memory. And this is kind of a, an unraveling and a reweaving of a family dynamic and all of these things. And I haven't gotten through to the end of it yet. I'm halfway through. So no spoilers, please, Brooke. But I was... I picked up the book once I knew that there was lots of sex in it. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, I, I'm going to support my friend. Like I bought the book, but I had not started reading the book. And then multiple times you referenced in a conversation, you're like, well, people are just surprised by how much sex is in the book. And I was like, wait, there's lots of sex in this book. I'm like, well, I'm, I really like some steam, a side of sex with my, with my reading material. So that's what really prompted me to pick it up. And as I got into it, I was like, holy shit, she does have a lot of sex in this book. And not only partnered sex, there's masturbation in the book. There are, Laura touches herself multiple times. Like there are these steamy kind of solo scenes. And there is, you know, this great, there's a bunch of different dynamics going on that lead to different types of sex, different flavors, different energies. So not only are you writing sex, but you're writing multiple kinds of sex within Mm. this more intricate human dynamic. And I'm curious if when you set out to write this heart-wrenching story about Alzheimer's and loss, did you know that you were going to write that much sex? Yeah, that's a great question. And I did not. And it's sort of like, so this it sort of goes to one thing that I learned when I did my MFA in creative writing. I remember one of my professors said to me, like, literary fiction means that it's character-driven fiction. And she was like, so you can write genre fiction, you can be writing a mystery or a thriller or a fantasy, but if it's driven by characters and not by a formula, that's what makes it literary fiction. And so I really went from this place of like, I had a family and I knew they were dealing with Alzheimer's and I knew there were four siblings that didn't get along. And then that was kind of all I knew about them. And so I really went deeply into like their, their journeys and their psyche. And like, and I really tried to 
disappear myself as the author. And so I'm really gratified to say that you notice that, that you're like, oh, these are just like people and, and you don't hear my voice at all. Like that to me is like the best possible feedback. And so it was not my intention, like, oh, let me write about a lot of sex. And it just sort of evolved into that. And I will say that the reactions to it have been fascinating, right? So, so the first thing is every book club that I have done, the first question is like, tell me about like, why is there so much sex? Like, like let's talk about all the sex, right? And then I had like a family member who was a little more conservative, called me, told me how much they loved it. Also was like, it was really too graphic. Like, like, why did you do that? Right? Like this very sort of like, you know, it was really uncomfortable for me. And I was kind of like, that's your opinion. And like a lot of other people, like that's like their favorite part about it. Right. So, um, Again, it just sort of came out of going into the characters and, and letting them do what I thought they would really do without kind of my own, even my own like sort of moral code or my own, like what I would do in terms of like having different kinds of sex, right? It was sort of like letting those characters make those choices and have that like full life that I think they really would have and not sort of putting my own blinkers on it. Mm. And that brings up uh, a reflection that I was having as I was reading last night, which is that I, I think what's so surprising about the amount of sex in it is that if you were actually following someone intimately through their life, adults, mm -hmm. that is what would be happening, but it's yeah. so startlingly absent from a lot of fiction. Yes. Like this book is not erotica, but there's almost like there's nothing between erotica and then the perfect beachy read. Like I've read a lot of great fluffy poolside, easy reading kind of novels this summer. And even the best ones, sex is so absent. Mm -hmm. And so I was really struck by I think a part of me is sad that it felt shocking. And I think it only feels shocking because it's missing from this genre. It's missing from our stories. Like sex is still something that we at large are not comfortable talking about within a human normalized. This is a part of our life and flow context. Like yeah. this is something that regular Joes do, like, unless we are highly eroticizing or, you know, dressing it up and glamorizing it or adding it to the kind of the dramatization of the story, it totally gets left out. Yes. Yes. And this is so interesting because right before my book came out, there was a sequel to a book that I really liked came out and it's sort of, it's sort of a romance book, but it's very smart. It's very well done. The characters are really developed, right? So it, it kind of it evades a lot of, I'm not, I'm not knocking romance, but it sort of evades a lot of like the tropes of like regular romance. And I remember I was reading it and all of the sex moments, they cut away, right? So it would be like, and then, right. And it would be like fade to black before you get any like juicy details. Oh, yeah. and I remember I texted my best friend and I was like, oh my God, this is an actual romance book and it doesn't have any sex. And I was like, 
am I trashy? Like there's so much sex in my book. Like I basically like freaked out. And she wrote back and she was like, honey, like, of course you're not. And she was like, listen, we are grown ass women and we want sex scenes. Like she was just like, right. Like we want the sex, right. It was, and it was basically what you said, right. Of like, in like a regular person's life, it's like this, I was trying to represent, right. Like what actual people like might experience. Yeah. And I felt like you did such an amazing job of that just in, again, like keeping the sex specific to the character and the type. Mm -hmm. It's like you get over the span of the story and the development of the relationships, you get to see what it's like to have empowering consensual sex that makes somebody feel seen where they were in a relationship where they weren't seen Mm -hmm. before. And and people who utilize sex to deepen their self-loathing and their kind of toxic patterns and behavior. And like, there was all of these different applications that again, were just so incredibly human that I found it really, really refreshing. And I, so I, I really want to compliment you on that, but I also was curious and you, you kind of mentioned this before when you were saying you were following all the characters and not knowing exactly where they were going, but you were just following them and seeing kind of what they were going to show you. And I was curious if you wrote sex from fantasy experience research or all of Mm. the above. Ooh, good question. Yeah. So I think when I was writing the book, I was newly married. And so a lot of it, like it was sort of, I was able to like be exploring, exploring different sides of myself. I think that was part of it. And certainly then having, being able to, from my own experience, then imagine what someone in a very different experience, in a very different relationship, in a very different approach to life really like might also experience and how they might use sex and experience sex. And like you said, like deepening their self-loathing, right? There's all these kind of different approaches. So I think that that definitely, definitely played into it. And I think there's also pieces in which, um, so I didn't do any research. I didn't do a lot of research on the book in general. And I think it's interesting because I've had people say like, well, this part or that part, like, how could you have even made that up? Right. And so I always tell this story that Stephen Pressfield, I can't remember if it's in the war of art or turning pro or one of his other books, but he talks about how he had written this screenplay of a guy who's in prison and it was sort of making the rounds. And he started having all these people like sidle up to him at Hollywood parties and be like, Hey man, where did you do time? He was like, I've never been to prison, right? Like, and he was talking about how, like, when you're able yeah. to kind of tap into this, like, collective, um, kind of creative subconscious, right? You're able to write things that you haven't actually experienced without doing a lot of, like, like research, research, right? But you're able to kind of tap in and let that come through in really interesting ways. Yeah. So I guess the the flip side of that question that just came to me is have you ever borrowed anything from your character sex lives to take into your sex life oh that's interesting <laughs> I haven't but that's like an interesting that's an interesting experiment mm, yeah because <laughs> I definitely in the in the times where I'm whether I'm like writing creative writing for fun or something I've definitely taken things from 
books or erotica or right like it's it's inspirational it's aspirational like I'll listen to something or read something I'm like oh I've never thought of doing that I'm gonna try that out myself yeah I love that yeah Yeah. and there's one other thing and I know that you you probably haven't gotten to this part yet and so I don't want to spoil but also as a trigger warning I want to just surface that there is a very short scene kind of later in the book where there is there is like a rape scene Mm -hmm. and so I just want to surface that for people who are listening like so that you're not surprised I would say it's like a paragraph long. It's very short. Um, but, and also I've had people tell me that it was really difficult for them to read or that it was triggering mm-hmm. it. So I think it's helpful to also just surface. Yeah. That I'll be sure and put that in the notes too. When yeah. I put the book links and stuff in there. Yeah. 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 And that and was so- a place where, and again, that was a place where people had asked me, like, how do you write something like that? that you have an experience, like, and they kind of presume to say that, and I haven't, but like, they're kind of like, how do you get to that place? Right. And so mm-hmm. I talk a lot with my coaching clients who are writing either fiction or nonfiction when they're writing about really dark things. Um, I do a lot of somatic work to stay in my body. And then also to kind of put almost like I'm holding up my hands, like a parentheses, like around, like I kind of will create this space for myself and say, I'm going to go in and I'm going to write something really deep and dark. And then I come out very intentionally. And there's things that I do to kind of leave some of those darker moments, like on the page so that I'm not carrying them forward, like into my day. So I do a lot of that work with my clients because a lot of people are wanting to write about difficult things. And so that's something that I focus on a lot in my work. Mm. It sounds like something that deeply connected writers, people who are able to access that kind of the depths of human emotion and pain and experience when they haven't themselves experienced it is, is empathy, like a lot of empathy. Would you say that? Have you experienced with all of the writers that you've worked with and even yourself that empathy is something that shows up really strongly? Yes, definitely. And I love this because in the new book that I'm working on, I just made notes this morning about how I want to show empathy as a superpower. And, and it's literally because of that, right? Because I think that, and this shows up in, in not only writers, but in readers too, right? So there's research that shows that people who read fiction are more empathetic because you can kind of get into someone else's story and see behind someone else's eyes, right? And so from the writing side, it feels so essential to me, right? That like, I can, I can feel people's emotions, like just by being in the room with them. And I think that's part of what has led me to be able to represent characters who have such different experiences and different backgrounds. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's so important. And that is, is reflecting of what we mentioned earlier, just in how it can be uncomfortable to sit with characters who maybe you don't see a lot of yourself in them, or maybe you're afraid to see the potential of what they represent in yourself. But then I think too, it just, there was, there's one book I'm thinking of that I read recently that was really, my sister and I are still, so one of my sisters and I, we have a two person book club that the two of us just were like, okay, what are we reading now? We started out with all four sisters and everybody kind of like dwindled (laughs) off and she and I were finishing like a month ahead of everybody. And so we finally were like, okay, let's let's just, you know, keep reading the same book and we'll like send emojis and heads exploding in text like while we read. (laughs) So this is a book that we both read together and are still talking about because it was devastating. It was a brutal, very moving, um, very different, like the kind of book that just 
cracks your mind open and it was new and I, I couldn't stop reading it because it was such a new concept, such an interesting way of thinking about the world. And it was kind of this um, fantasy, futuristic kind of thing. But ultimately the, the mother in it is the person that as, as a mother, like as mothers, we're deeply trying to relate to her. And she keeps making these really disturbing decisions. Mm. And I think by the end of the book, I definitely felt that I somewhat understood her, but I think it was just this, even the things that I could not wrap my head around, especially as a mother who had a daughter, as this character did, mm. I understood that what had happened was her interpretation of doing whatever it took like for her child. And that even if my decisions would be different, I would also do whatever it took to protect and and maintain my child. And so it, it was, it was this beautiful kind of moment of empathizing with someone who was pretty monstrous, you know, but just seeing maybe more of me than I was comfortable with in that character. And I, you know, this has turned into like a diatribe on why reading is really important. I know everyone is not a a book person, but I think story is really important. This is one of the reasons why story is so deeply important. And whether you're listening to your books or reading your books or whatever, or watching your books, it doesn't matter. But I think stories are important for expanding our mind and how we see and feel and experience, you know, context and relationships and all of that. It's a little bit of a side, side rant, but <laughs> yes, hundred percent, hundred percent agree. And one of the things that I always say in my work, so as a book coach, my, my brand is called writing brave. And part of what I talk about is that like stories are what change the world. Like that's how, that is the vehicle by which, right? Like we change the world and it's not necessarily like fiction stories. It can be. And also, right. I think like the way that we shift the narrative is to give people a stake in it. Right. And so that's, yeah, that's hundred mm. percent. That's your, that's your sound clip. Yeah. That's my <laughs> the way that we shift the narrative is to yes. give people a stake in it. Well, this podcast was formed and based kind of the guiding mantra for this space was Ann Voskamp's quote, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. Mm, yes. And that just, it leads back into that really beautifully. Yes, for sure. So I'm curious about how for listeners, Brooke and I worked together during the spring. She participated in um, one of my group offerings and that was a continuation of some beautiful work that you've been doing, self-healing work and, and just working with your own sexuality and your freedom of expression and just bringing more safety into how you express and how you put all of that together for yourself. And I'm just really curious how your own journey with sexuality has or is or will impact your writing and your characters and their experience of healthy, empowered sex Mm. moving forward. 
Yeah, I love this so much. So I think part of what's been coming out for me is this exploration of right creativity and sexuality are so linked like in the sacral chakra, they're like literally in the same area of the body, right? And there's the womb is there, right? So it's just such an interesting, like rich area. And there's a lot of connections that I hadn't really known before, right? So part of what you need to know about Catchlight is it took me seven years to write that book. And then it took me six years to get it published. So that book has been written since like 2014. So, right. It's this older version of me that people are reading, which is like really fascinating to think about. Right. So I think part of having done a lot of this work since then, right. Part of what's coming out is, well, a few things. So I think I sort of recognize for myself, ways in which like I remember feeling kind of turned on like in my little art space when I was like maybe four five six years old and then like learning really quickly that that turn on feeling was like bad or wrong or like right like like this sort of shutting down of sexuality just in general I grew up Catholic I went to Catholic school right all the things and so I think it's fascinating as I've sort of been turning those switches all back on, right, to see what's happened to my writing practice. So I think it took it took a really big hit when I had my kids, right? So I run my own business. I have two small kids. When as as we're talking, they're six and three, right? So it's like we're right in the thick of it, right? I think when they were first born, I was like, I have no idea like how to work and parent and also be writing something for myself. Like I just had no idea like how to balance all of those things. And I think the place that I've gotten to is that, and my coach reflected this to me recently. She said like, when you're not in your own writing practice, like everything else just goes to shit. She was like, you start resenting your children, you fight with your husband. Like she was like, she was just reflecting back to me, like things that I had said and kind of drawing out that thread. And I was like, oh yeah, like that is hundred percent true. Right. So I think that as I have been prioritizing my own kind of sexual expression, my own pleasure, it has led to me prioritizing my creativity in a much more intentional way, right? And so it certainly doesn't look the way it did before I have kids, right? So there was a time when I would sit down when I first woke up for an hour every single morning and like work on a book. Like that is no longer feasible. <laughs> like it's just like- That it's, is not a thing. <laughs> it's not a thing that's even remotely possible, right? And also I have found like through a lot of trial and error that- um, being in my book every day is really important, right? So as I'm like building this fictional world, like it's really important for me to kind of keep up the momentum. So I will do like 200 words a day and it takes me like 15 minutes or 20 minutes. I just drop in, I write what's coming out and then I go about my day, right? And that is enough to kind of fuel all these other parts of my life, which feels so vital. And the last thing I'll say is like, um, the stuff that's coming out in the new book is like wild. <laughs> like I'm like, I don't know where this is going. I don't know where this is coming from. Like it feels really big to me and it's very different than Catchlight. And, and it just feels like there's, it's a lot, like there are parts I'm like, this is kind of freaky, but I'm going to go with it. Right. So it just feels a lot more experimental and that feels sort of also related right to my own evolution. Mm, yeah. And that brings up a, a whirl of things for me. <laughs> like my, get my, get my thoughts in check here. One thing that 
you've said a couple of times now that is standing out to me is this idea that you start writing your stories and you actually don't know where you're going. I think that a concept that a lot of people have and one that I have run into as someone who identifies as a writer, as somebody who has always written as a creative outlet and way of authentic expression, I struggle with this idea that the reason I haven't like written a book yet, for example, and you've probably heard this from your clients a bunch of times has been like, oh, well, I, I don't, I don't have a complete anything. Like I don't have, you know, like, it's almost like I have this idea that I have to have my book outline, my chapters one through 25, like titled and know exactly what's going in them before I can sit down and actually write. And what you're saying is you sit down and you like follow these characters and you have no clue like where they're going or what they're going to say next or what they're going to get into. And it's this very co-creative, energetic, um, intuitive process, which leads me into, you know, what I'm dying to talk to you about next, which is the, the correlating conditions for great sex and great art, because the best sex of my life has been sex that I've gone into without too many ideas about where it was going. I wasn't caught up in my head about what it was supposed to look like or sound like, or what was going to happen. It was something where intuition and connection were leading and we were following what felt good and what felt interesting. And that is where some of the juiciest kind of intimacy and pleasure comes from. And I'm just so curious to hear your thoughts on creating those conditions, like drawing that line between this creative process, this being with and being willing to follow something and not know where it's going. Yes. Oh my gosh. I have so many things to say. Okay. (laughs) The first thing I'll start with the sex since you, since you ended on that note. So when I was working with you in vitality, one of the things that we talked about as a group was this idea of not being so goal oriented. And this is something I hadn't even recognized for myself that like, right. I was very goal oriented, right. The goal being orgasm for myself and my partner. And like, and you were kind of like, well, what would happen, right. If you were to explore sex and literally the goal was like not to have an orgasm and I was like what right like my mind is blown right and and you were like and take your time by the way (laughs) also take your time right don't be in such a rush and I had not realized how much I had been rushing right I had been rushing to like either feel like I wasn't taking so like, you know, to avoid that feeling of like, I'm taking too long, right. To climax or whatever. Right. Or feeling like, you know, I have to make sure he's taken care of like whatever it is like, right. There was a lot of rushing that was happening. And when I was able to kind of drop that out and just be like, okay, what happens if it's like just playful and like, we're just being present. And the goal is to like create pleasure, but not necessarily orgasm like what happens and wow, what happened was really awesome. Right? <laughs> um, I, I remember, I feel like I sent you a bunch of texts that were like on Voxer that were like, just like mind exploding. Like, Oh my God, those are my, but those are my favorite Voxers to wake up to are the Voxers like, Oh, I tried the thing you gave me last night and yes. I had a billion and 12 orgasms and it was so great. <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. And so part of what I will say is because this, in terms of the connection to writing or making any kind of art, right? The thing is the same that happens is that we think that there's a goal and the goal is a finished book. And we think that people, you know, like, again, have, like you said, have this outline and it's blah, blah, blah. And then you follow through and it's, it's, it's very boring. I find like when you think that that is the only way to write or to create, and I think part of what happens, so part of what I teach actually is that a lot of this is sort of programming of like the male patriarchal hustle culture, like goal oriented, you're just doing this to get it done and check it off, right? Check off all the boxes. And when we go into this more receptive feminine space of, I don't know don't know what's going to happen, right? So there's this great quote by a choreographer, Agnes DeMille, I think her name is. And she says, um, the artist never entirely knows. She says, we, we leap, basically, like we make leap after leap into the darkness. And that has influenced my work like so much because again, I do, I sit down and I'm like, what's going to happen today? I have no idea. And sometimes it's really frustrating, right? I'm at a point in my new book where I'm like, I've written a hundred pages and I don't know how they tie together. And there's three different characters. And I don't know, like, I don't know yet what their story is. And it's sometimes I really am like, I just wish I was at the next part where like, I could see where it all comes together. And also what I know is that when I work from the inside out, instead of from the outside in, right. When I work from the inside out, like really interesting things happen that I couldn't have planned with my conscious brain, right? So if I keep trusting the process, I know that something more interesting is going to come out of it. Mm, yeah. So to recap this portion, cause I feel like it's really important to kind of like tie bows on it. Like these correlating conditions for great sex and great art, whether that's writing or um, painting or anything that you pour yourself into it, it feels like something that keeps coming up is first of all, prioritization, mm. consistency. Like one thing we talked about was a self-pleasure practice. That's something I talk about a lot. And you mm. even mentioned that you, now that you have kids, like you jump into your book for 15 minutes a day just to stay connected to it. And yes. that runs side by side with this concept that I teach women all the time around keeping that kind of pilot flame lit yes. where it's like the reason we tap in and connect with our body on a regular basis so that we're not trying to take something from cold to hot in a short period of time, but we're staying in this constant communication and relationship with that energy so that it is available and it's ready for us anytime anytime, anytime yes. that we're ready for it. Yes. Would you add yeah. anything else to that? Yes. I love that. So I think prioritization, I think there's also like this pleasure piece, right? I think that a lot of times we think writing has to be this, like, Oh, you sit down for an hour and you have to write this many words. And it's like, I literally tell my clients, like, make it as fun as you possibly can. Right. So it's like brew your favorite coffee and put on your favorite music. And like, I draw Oracle cards before I write and write, like, I just try to make it as fun as possible. I'm going on a writing retreat next week with two of my really close friends. And we're just going to go to like a cute bed and breakfast and get away from our families and like spend some time writing and like eating good food. Right. So that has been something I've been looking forward to for a long time. That's been like five months in the making, right? So, um, so adding pleasure, I think, to the routine is really important. And then I think the last thing that I would add is so prioritization, pleasure, 
it's not a P, but I think there's this piece about being able to sit with the uncertainty of not knowing, right? Of not knowing where it's going and just, well, and maybe it is a P, it's to emphasize the process maybe over mm-hmm. the results, right? So when you're, when you're emphasizing the process, whether it's like having pleasure in sex instead of the goal and like um, enjoying the process of writing and seeing what comes out instead of being like, I have to get to a book in six months or, or whatever it is, it's a lot more fun when you just lean on the process. Yeah. And the last P I would drop in there is presence, right? Like that comes when it comes to creativity and to sex and to all of the things worth having presence is hugely important, you know, without presence, it's, it's the ability to be present to what is happening right now and not getting sucked out of our body or out of our story or out of the room. It's this ability to stay with the here and now, Mm -hmm. which is what so much of the healing work that I do with clients is about, it's about this strengthening and training and nervous system resilience that gives you the tools to come back to whatever it is you're working on in this given moment, especially I think when you're dealing with, like we were talking about earlier, when you're dealing with writing heavy things or hard things, writing tragedy, writing something that's painful, or you are on your own healing journey and you're experiencing and living the hard things that are painful. It's easy to get whipped into, you know, the past and the future where anxiety is and and the cycle continues when we can't come back to right here or right now. What are we feeling? And can we get to a place that feels good for us? You know, can we get to a place that feels peaceful and and that gives us greater capacity to tap into those things? And Mm. that kind of leads into um, my next question for you, which you and I have talked a little kind of offline about how your, your creative practice that you have, you know, cultivated so strongly over the years and also the pleasure that you've been bringing in, how that has really served you in creating capacity, not only for more in your life, as far as more energy and the feeling of more space and time, but also it has created um, fuel for your activism. And I'm really curious about what that has looked like. I would love to hear a little bit about that because I think a lot, we're obviously in a time in history when our activism is more needed and more important than ever. And that comes on the tail end of this collective just depletion. People are so tired and drained and tapped out. And it's like, yeah, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I have no energy and nothing to give to the fight, even though it's so necessary and essential that we all fight right now. So Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to hear how that's unfolding for you. Yeah. Thank you for this question. I love it so much. So as you were talking, part of what came up for me was, so I spent a lot of my life, again, being very, a very sensitive person and very empathetic, basically feeling totally swamped by terrible things that happened in the world. And then just totally shutting down and disassociating from my body. Right. Like that was like, for most of my life, that was what happened when, when tragedy would strike, it would basically be like this complete, like I could feel everything. And then, and then I would feel nothing because it was like, I was so overloaded and I had no capacity that I would just shut down. Right. So having done a lot of, 
again, trauma healing work and somatic work to be able to be present to, and also have these like I wouldn't say perfect, but like more exquisite emotional boundaries where I can sort of like open them and be like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling like I'm feeling and empathizing with all the people that are affected by whatever it is, right? There's been so many things that like there, I can't just name one, right? There's so many. (laughs) Um, And then I can sort of, when I need to, right, close the boundaries a little bit and sort of refuel myself and tend to what I'm feeling about all the things that are happening and sort of, right, tend to those pieces. And then, like you said, right, being in my creative practice and also in my pleasure, I've been able to, for the first time, like literally ever, be like, okay, well, what action am I going to take, right? And following the guidance that's been arising about like, okay, what empowered action can I take, right? So a few things that, of what that's looks like for me, one is using my voice, right? And I used to think like, well, no one cares what I have to say, right? And so, and now I'm like, well, actually... A lot of people read my words on Facebook. Like, and some of them are people I know, and some of them are people I don't know. And I have a small but mighty email list. And so, um, when there, when the school shooting in Uvalde happened, basically I sent out stuff that was like, "These are the four thing, four things that you can do." I had four calls to action, and people wrote back. They were like, "I did them. Like, thank you for right. Like, they were like, thank you for giving me these concrete steps that I could take because I was feeling so overwhelmed and so hopeless." that I just was shutting down, which is by the way, a totally reasonable reaction to any of the things that are currently happening. Um, So I think there's that piece of like using my voice and being able to say like, being able to point people and then also just being able to vent my rage. That has been another huge piece of like, I think part of what has shut me down in the past has been my rage had no outlet and therefore it was just like almost eating me from the inside. And now I'm like, all y'all can read about my rage because I'm going to just like rage out loud. And it's been like actually really effective for me instead of like holding it inside to let it have expression. And then it's like, and then it can fuel me instead of just like, again, like burning me out. Mm. Um, so that's been really useful. And then I have also like joined some groups where I'm taking like very concrete action. Right. So I joined a group called super majority and they, um, they are a group of mostly women or queer people who are like, Hey, we are actually the majority in the U S and we are going to like work until our votes count as the majority that we are. Right. So actually just tonight, I'm hosting an abortion access house party at my house. People are going to come over and we're going to text bank, um, people in a specific state who, where the the state has like abortion on the ballot in the fall. And so, Mm -hmm. right. So like, I'm literally like, Hey, I'm inviting you over. We're taking action. We're actually doing something instead of raging silently and feeling like I can't make a difference, like joining with people who are already making a difference. Yeah. Or, or to go back to your really important point or raging loudly, but the rage without action, the rage without a place to go will literally eat you alive. Yes. You know, like we actually, we all know how it feels to have tragedy like that happen and to go into the social media feeds and to see post after post after post of like, fuck this. Why is it like this? This is horrible. I'm gutted. I'm terrified. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we do, we all feel that way, but it's this magnetization of that fear and that anger. And then when there's no steps to take and nowhere to go, that's where that spiral picks up speed and really deepens. And it feels very hopeless. And it feels like we're stuck in this dark 
deep hole that we're never going to get out of. And so it is incredibly helpful. I think people are waiting for people like you to just send out an email and be like, okay, like here's just, I'm going to cut through the noise. I see you. I am grieving with you. Here are the four things I'm doing. If you have more stuff, like share that or whatever, yeah. but it's like, maybe this is something you can do right now. And I found there's been such a profound shift in my energy. Even when I stop on one of the posts, that's like, you want to do something, text this number and I'll text that number and I'll get on the list. And then, you know, I'll, I'll get, I'll do, um, I'll like find a location where they're going to be meeting and I'll go to a, you know, action meeting and and do these different things. It's like following these prompts and actually showing up and actually doing something takes you out of that space of like, Oh my God, Oh my God, there's nothing I can do. It takes you out of the space of helplessness because if every person who felt helpless did one thing, every single person who's ever felt helpless, which is fucking all of us. Yes. If you did one thing, can you imagine I mean, we can't, we can't imagine the implications and the, the reach that those actions would have. Yes. I love that so much. And it, and it's so true because when, when the Uvalde shooting happened, I was in this place of like helplessness and I was thinking nothing, what we're doing isn't working. Nothing is going to ever change this. And so I started educating myself. And what I found out was that the group moms demand action, which is like millions and millions strong, um, on the local level, they have stopped like crazy gun, like, like folks wanting to like release gun control laws, like 90% of the time they have defeated the gun lobby at the local and state level. But like, we don't see that on the news, right? Because, and the, the founder was saying like, we hadn't had this come to Jesus moment. Well, then in the following weeks, like, and I know, I know the podcast will be like, after this has all happened, but basically moms demand action and every town together drove more than a million phone calls to U.S. senators. And that is literally what got the gun control bill Mm -hmm. passed, Passed. right? So it's like, and they've been working, they've been working for 10 years, right? And it's like, so they were, they had the capacity to be like, and now we will drive a million phone calls to, we're going to shut down the switchboard. And Moms in Action is one of the first um, organizations that I joined. Um, Not, not, unfortunately, not this shooting, but several ago. Yeah. 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 So I guess part of, part of what I was learning is that in my helplessness, there was an arrogance of like, no one's doing anything and this can't be fixed. And it was like, actually there's millions of people that are working and they have had a lot of victories and it's not enough yet. And we're going to keep working right until there is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so also there's this feeling of, for me, it's a long game, right? Where I was thinking like, well, we need to change things very quickly. Like, nope, it's the long game. And the only thing that fuels us for the long game is like having the boundaries and like the self-care. And for me, creativity is part of that self-care of like, what's going to fuel me for the next Mm -hmm. 10 years of campaigns. Yeah. Well, and I think also creating beauty and meaning when everything around you is dark and shitty is really important. Yeah. I think it's more important than ever that people tap into their artistry and they tap into their passion and they tap into that turned on feeling and they lean into pleasure and connection and full vital expression. I think it's more important now than it's ever been to do that because that is what is going to create light in the darkness. Like that is what is going to carry us through. And as you're saying, create that, that capacity to keep showing up and fighting. And I, I think it's interesting because 
the, the correlations between all of this and, you know, sex, art, whatever it, it can be when we're frustrated, when we feel stuck, we get that. I, I like that you use the word arrogance. There is this kind of feeling of, oh, well, like I tried that one thing and it didn't work, or I tried this, or I like, I just, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like I tried it and it didn't make a difference. And I think part of that does come from this, um, silver bullet mentality that we have as a culture where it's like, oh, we're waiting for like the one pill, the one diet, the one workout, the one stop shop to solve all of our problems. And I have a lot of compassion for the fact that urgency is always the trauma talking. It's always Mm. the pain talking, the desire to be done with this right now, the desire for relief, the desire for this to be over. That is always your trauma talking. And we are experiencing trauma on a huge collective and individual level right now. And so I see that and everything that I teach. And it sounds like in in ways, so many ways, everything that you teach, like comes back to this. How do we stay with these uncomfortable things? How do we create safety and resource to be with the uncomfortable things until they move? Like they're not all going to move out at once. Everything is not going to be better overnight. Your story is not going to be born in one sitting. Like you're not going to heal years of sexual trauma in one session. We're not going to change gun laws and abortion laws overnight. Like these are things that we have to build the capacity to stay with mm-hmm. until they change. And that could be your whole life. And so what does it look like to get that deep sense of health and well-being and regulation and safety that we all have access to internally, how do we keep one foot like in the goodness and in the light and in the hope and in the possibility and that other foot kind of in that righteous rage and that action and, and go back and forth between those two things. You know, it's like, we can't lose either one of those. We have to dedicate ourselves to both of those. And so I think activism, pleasure, creativity, I mean, those should all be braided together. Like our pleasure is a form of activism. Yeah. Activism is a great book, um, <laughs> but I will link for you guys as well. Um, but pleasure, creativity is a form of activism. Love making is a form of activism. Like this yes. is the world needs our love and art right now more than ever, I think. Yes. I love that so much. And it, it reminds me of the quote from Rent, which says, Uh, the opposite of war is in peace, it's creation, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's like, if we're in creation, like we are opposing war, like that just feels so powerful. And it's something that you can do right now today, right? Literally. And who knows, right? What will be born from your creativity? And the last piece I want to say too, is I always quote Brene Brown has this quote that she says, unused creativity is not benign. Right. So this idea that if you're not using, cause everyone is creative, right. And if you're not using your creativity, it turns malignant. Right. And so part of what I look at when I'm thinking about activism is, is keeping my own self clean, like my own energy, right. Like tending to myself so that I am not like spewing my 
like bitterness or like, right. Like all the feelings that like, haven't been tended to do. So I'm not like spewing them like at random people who cross my path, right? Like that's literally the first form of activism you can do. Right. And creativity is a way to tend to all those emotions that need an outlet. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, uh, that quote from St. Thomas, I believe it is. That's if you bring forth what is within you, it will save you. And if you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, Brooke, I have loved, loved this conversation. It is so juicy. And I feel like there's so many other places we could go, but I would love to give listeners information on how they can work with you right now and what you have going coming up. Um, I know you mentioned that you're working on a new book and we don't know where it's going, but if you want to tease any more of that, you're welcome to tell us all of, all of the good things. Where can people find you and be supported by you? Yeah. So good place to find me is my website, which currently is my name, brookeadamslaw.com. And I'm working on a new website, which will be up in the like the end of summer, 2022. And that one will be, we are writing And you can also find me on Instagram. It's at we are writing brave. And my big, I would say the way that I support people, the thing that I'm most well known for is my mastermind, which is called secrets of storytelling. And it's a really intimate small group mastermind. It actually, it starts in January of 2023. So I feel like it gives people like some time to be like, Oh, am I going to be ready to work on my book? Right? Like January is always a good time. Um, but we really dig into, right figuring out this divine feminine inspired creative process, really listening to your book and channeling the book that wants to come through you and kind of just messing around in all of the glorious gloriousness of it. So that is six months and it will be enrolling in the fall. And I also work with folks who are like, I have an idea, but like, I have no idea where to start. Right. So I have fire starter sessions for those folks. And if you've written a draft and you don't know what to do next, I do developmental editing and I also have my own small publishing company, which is called Writing Brave Press. So if you do not want to wait two to three years that it usually takes to pitch a traditional publisher, but you want to have more control over when your book comes out and what it looks like and all the goodness, uh, we do all of that. So it's really juicy and fun. Amazing. So for all my blossoming writers and creatives out there who have that book sitting inside of you waiting to be plucked out, reach out to Brooke, join her mastermind, do a fire starter session, all of the things, follow her online, jump on her email list. It'll be well worth, well worth your time. All right. I have two questions left for you about your, about your new book. One, where will there be sex in it? It's a good question. So I know right now, so I will tell, I'll tease a little bit of it. It's called Apothecary of Stories. And it's becoming more of like a fantasy book, which I did not intend. And I'm wrestling with it a little bit. What I do know is the main character is a second person narrator. So everything is like, you go here and you do this. And it's like, who is the you, right? So there's like a little mystery around them. And they are a non-binary character. So I'm not sure yet, like what the sex might look like, or yeah, I'm not sure yet what, what dimension it will have, but we're still, we're still in the dreaming phases. Okay. Yeah. Cause what I, and I won't even, I won't even put this in the form of the question. What I would love 
to see in this space still is slower sex. Mm. I would love to see slower, more deliberate, like not rush through lots of good warming up, making sure that people with vulvas are getting adequate time before any dicks are whipped out. (laughs) (laughs) I I need to see more of that in books. I think we would all benefit from having more of that in books just to because to even go back to that piece of your story, which I think so many people can relate to, we're all taught and conditioned to go fast. Like the act mm-hmm. of sex is something that's been fast, even masturbation for the people who managed or like decided to do it, even though there was all of the shame conditioning, it's something that you just kind of do and get it over with. And it's like, people kind of leave their bodies to do it. And so there is this slowness and this presence that comes when we are able to be fully in our body and we're able to kind of heal that relationship. And I love that you are having slower sex in real life. And I look forward to reading slower sex in the future. (laughs) I love this. I was just thinking that because I think a lot of authors use the sex scene as like the climax of the chapter, right? It's like literally the climax of a chapter, but like, what would it look like if the sex scene was the whole chapter, right? That would, that's mm-hmm. really yeah, I will say the one I will compliment, um, Jennifer Weiner. I read one of her books recently and I think her sex scene unfolded over like three pages, which for a book is like, is long. You know what I mean? Like typically there's this kind of verbal work up between the characters, but then the actual act of sex is really quick and it's over, you know, even if it's hot and even when it's graphic, it's over really quick. And so I enjoy, I was, I loved seeing it spread out over a couple of pages where I, I'm a skim aheader. So I had like skimmed ahead and I was like, oh damn, there's still not, there's still 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 not to it, which I love. (laughs) There was a lot of like, detail around taking off the clothes and breathing and checking in to see if it was good. And I, I just think that normalizing that is going to serve everyone on such a deep level. So I will thank you again for normalizing and humanizing sex so beautifully with all of your characters and Catchlight, which I will link in the show notes. Brooke, my dear, is there anything else you would like to say to the Nothing Confidential community? I think this has just been such a fun conversation. So it's like, Write brave and have slower sex, according to Kristen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thanks. We'll have you back. (laughs) Appreciate you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Hands on my heart. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for listening with an open and curious mind. Anne Voskamp says, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. I would be so grateful for your help to expand the safety we're creating here by subscribing, rating, and sharing this show with the folks you love. Let's keep nothing important confidential.